Uh, Jesus is the answer. And so uh, you know how the joke goes, and, and it's, it's funny because it's, it's, uh, it's kind of true, but, but here's how it goes. The Sunday school teacher asks the class, what color is the sky? And uh, little Billy puts up his hand, I know, I know, pick me. Okay, Billy. Jesus. The answer is Jesus in church. And uh, we laugh at that, but, but there is an element of truth in that. And that's, that's uh, what I want to... Um, want to take a look at. Um, how is Jesus the answer to some of these things that concern us? Now, when I started thinking about this and, and planning this, I, I was planning to tackle the topic of politics on this Sunday. I had no idea before Christmas that we would have the week that we just had in politics. Uh, and so um, I'm not going, I'm going to continue with this sermon that I was preparing, trusting that it's the right one, and not address specifically the events of the last week, but I, I trust that you are wise and able to, uh, not just last week, but any week uh, through this, this message, begin to um, perhaps think about how Jesus is the answer for politics. Now, as I address in these next few weeks politics and pandemic and and I'm not sure if I'll tackle economics or racism or, or what other topics. But I can guarantee you one thing. And that is that I'm going to say something that you think is inappropriate. I don't mean to. Uh, sometimes on sensitive topics I'll stand here and things will come out of my mouth. And I will immediately regret the words I chose. Uh, before I even say the next sentence. And sometimes I'll think I did a great job and people will point out to me something I said that was taken a different way than I intended or, or that my knowledge and wisdom was just not up to the task or whatever the case may be. And so I simply ask you for the grace of the benefit of the doubt. If I say something that strikes you the wrong way, uh, just assume that I didn't mean it that way. And if I did, it's because I was in, uninformed or I just can't know everything or, or whatever it is. I, I don't really think I need to say that. You're a gracious bunch of people. Uh, but I say it not just for myself, but for one another. We're, we're living in a climate where communication is much more difficult than it used to be. And the, uh, the temperature on the topics is much higher than it used to be. And so we're all at constant fear of saying something that someone else will take inappropriately and uh, I, just, I just ask that we give one another that grace and, and just believe that we mean well and we mean right. And either misspoke, didn't understand how it would be heard, or just didn't know enough to be more wise. Uh, those things are all part of the conversation. But on this topic of politics and Jesus, um, I've heard it said from time to time that Jesus just ignored the politics of his day and, and focused on the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and, and just was, you know, uh, focused that way. But when we, when we really look into and do some research, we find that Jesus was actually fairly intensely political in some situations. Um, it doesn't mean you can't understand what he says by reading your gospels and, and, and uh, taking it that way. But, but there's a, a, another level of understanding if we take the time to do the research and understand the politics of his day. And there's one passage in particular that I think he addresses uh, politics and political conflict uh, more clearly than anywhere else, at least in terms of my understanding. 
and I haven't researched the background of every one of his parables or speeches or anything like that, so there might be one that's, that's even more political. But there, there's, a, there's a passage where, where he addresses a political conflict directly. And it's Mark chapter 12. I'm going to read that to you, and then, and then we'll, we'll dive into it and, and see what he says and how he addresses this. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Later, the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, Why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. When they handed, when they handed it to him, he asked, Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, Jesus said, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. His reply completely amazed them. Now, in our context, and what we understand about taxes, that reply does not seem very amazing. That's only because we don't understand uh, the background situation. And I want to take some time to, to detail just a little bit of the politics of Jesus' day and then uh, look at this parable and then see how it applies uh, not just to this week but to any week in terms of a Christian response or a Christian engagement in politics. Of course, we won't explore this topic extent, uh, exhaustively. Uh, there, there's far more that can be said, but, but this might tap us in the right direction. So what you have there is a map of, of Palestine in the days of Jesus. And I want to um, highlight a couple of things. The different color markers are different political jurisdictions. And so uh, I'm going to move outside of this teaching into some other stories just to give you an example of what I mean. The area in pink there uh, is named the Decapolis. Deca means ten and polis means city. And that's an area that politically is 10 independent city-states that have banded together to form a region. And how that works is when the Romans came into this area and, and seek to overtake it and overthrow it, they offer different areas options. Now, if you can make an arrangement to keep your independence as an area, as long as you play tribute to the Romans, they'll, they'll leave you alone. It costs them much less than if they have to police the area and occupy it and fight and all of that. So, so th these ten cities, when the Romans were, were coming, they banded together independent city-states, and they said, let's, let's form an alliance, let's form a region, uh, a little bit like the United States, independent city-states that have d decided to cooperate together, form, a, form an agreement, and let's approach the Romans with our agreement, and the Romans agreed to it. You can manage this area as long as you pay your tribute. We won't send troops in. We won't overpower you. You can keep your independence as long as you do uh, your tribute according to the agreement that we have 
have, uh, have managed. And so that was kind of a free, independent area uh, that, that managed its own affairs, its own political and its own, uh, and its own uh, policing and you know, all the different things that a state does. Now, if you look across the Sea of Galilee into the little area there called Galilee, that was another independent area. This area was ruled by one named Herod Antipas. He was a king. He, he was king of that region. And he likewise had an agreement with the Romans where he could manage that area as his little kingdom as long as he paid his tribute to Rome. They would let him police it. They would let him set the laws. He would, they would let them, as long as he kept the peace and, and, and kept the, the terms of the agreement with the Roman overlords, uh, he would have his independence in that area. Now, he's not, he's not uh, the same Herod that we read in the Christmas stories, a different man, interesting alignments or connections uh, historically, but we're not going to get into that today. But the reason this is important to, to just think about Jesus is, do you remember how many times Jesus went across the sea? He sailed across the sea, and then he taught on one side, and then he went back, and then his followers ran around, like all of these stories. Well, what happens is, is Jesus gained a large crowd, Herod, the king in Galilee, didn't like large crowds because they sometimes did unpredictable things. And if they turned violent, as they often did, then the Romans would take his kingdom away from him because he wasn't managing the peace. And so if Jesus was doing something that caught the attention of the government, the kingdom, he would be in danger. So what would he do? He would go across the Sea of Galilee into the Decapolis, a different jurisdiction. They couldn't arrest him there. They couldn't go there. Wait for things to calm down. Then if a bunch of pigs go off a cliff and the people in the Decapolis get mad at him, what would he do? Go across, back to Galilee. And the same thing if you look south down around Judea. um, If Jesus is getting into trouble in Jerusalem, where's the closest border? Samaria. So he could go take his disciples into Samaria and the jurisdiction down in Judea couldn't touch him. It's a different political uh, place. And so I've talked about Galilee. The other, and the supporters of Herod come up in this story uh, about the, the taxes. In Judea, it was quite different than these other regions. Judea uh, If we go back to the Christmas story and we remember that Herod, uh, that was king of Judea in that time, uh, did really crazy things like kill all the children under two. You can imagine the people in the area didn't support him, didn't like him, uh, were not necessarily very uh, ruly or or very... uh, very timid towards the authorities. And he was, a, he was a terrible ruler, and the Romans eventually recognized that he was not doing a good job in that area, and they came in with force and took his kingdom away. And Judea was now, at the time of Jesus, a province of Rome. So it was ruled by Roman governors. It had no independence. It was policed by Roman soldiers and Roman centurions. There was garrisons stationed throughout Judea to keep the peace and everything. It was, it was a Roman province. And so uh, any, any political uh, appeals would have to go all the way to Rome. You couldn't really do that in the area. But there was fairly strong religious um, influence in courts that the Romans allowed in Judea. And we read about that in various different ways um, in 
in the time of Jesus. Um, so the other party here in this discussion in Mark 12 with Jesus is the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were not really a political power. They were a populist movement. And so after all the troubles under Herod and the, and the Romans coming in in force and taking over the region, the Pharisees had been around for many years, but they became very popular at this time. And their message was, if we meticulously keep the law of Moses, then just like in the time of the Pharaohs, God will come and miraculously free us from the Romans. So they weren't looking for a political solution. They weren't looking for, for an insurrection or a, or a physical armed rebellion. They were looking for a moral revival that would cause God to come. And like he, he sent the plagues and split the Red Sea, he would somehow get rid of the, the Romans without the, the need of human aid. That's an oversimplification of their thought, but that's kind of the idea. Uh, that they were working towards. Their political agenda was to get the Romans out, but through a different method. So it's interesting because the Pharisees had wide audience and great popularity in Judea. But they had nothing in Galilee. In fact, there is some surviving writings from Pharisees from Jesus' time. And one of them has a name that uh, is um, Rabbi... Yohonan ben Zakiah. So this rabbi had spent a large part of his life in Galilee as a missionary. He'd gone from Judea to Galilee and he'd preached this message about keeping the law in order that God would deliver all of Palestine from the Romans. And this is what he said when he came back. We have some of his writings still survive and he, he wrote this when he returned to Judea having given up in Galilee. He said, Galilee, Galilee, you hate the Torah. He made no ground. The Pharisees had no hearing in Galilee. And so the Pharisees and the people in Judea did not like the Galileans because they thought the Galileans, because they weren't following the Torah the way the Pharisees said, were, were the thing that kept God from delivering them. The Galileans were the reason. They were under Roman rule because the Galileans wouldn't follow the Torah. They're the enemies. Politically, they're the, the worst people. The supporters of Herod had a different plan. They too wanted to get rid of the Romans, but they had a different plan. Their plan was, if we can do such a good job in this kingdom of Galilee, the Romans will recognize that we're, that we're dependable, that we're good, that we rule very well, and they'll give us the other regions. They'll expand our kingdom. And when the, when the Romans give us Samaria and Judea, then it will be almost like the time of David, and King Herod will be the fulfillment of, of uh, the promises. So they, they had a different... And the Pharisees stood in their way. The Pharisees were their enemies, because the Pharisees were looking for a miraculous spiritual... Uh, deliverance and the Galileans, the supporters of Herod, were looking for a political uh, good rule kind of solution to this problem of the Roman occupation. And of course, that centers on taxes. Because God's law, according to the Pharisees, 
says that you don't pay anything except your tithe to God. So the Roman tax is abomination. And the supporters of Herod thought, if you just pay your tribute to the Romans, they'll let us rule this area according to God. So this was a a point of intense political contention between these people. They were not likely uh, cooperators. They were enemies. But because of Jesus, they came together to trap him because he was in the way for both of them. In Galilee, the crowds came to Jesus and listened to his teaching. And the Romans knew that many that Galilee was a, a warlike place and many insurrections had come out of Galilee. And whenever there's a crowd, whenever there's emotion, uh, the Romans are going to take notice and say, you're not doing a good job of managing the peace. So the supporters of Herod thought, if we can get Jesus, the Romans will look favorably on us because we handled this issue without their intervention. And the Pharisees thought Jesus was in there and he, he was encouraging all their followers to do things like, like go to big dinner parties and walk through fields on the Sabbath and, and take the gleanings uh, of the grain and, and, and just, just be loose with the, with the rules on, on, on law keeping. And, and they're encouraging huge crowds of people to move away from our teaching and to a more relaxed uh, attitude towards the Torah. And so that was a a direct attack, a direct threat to what they were all about. So though the Pharisees and the supporter of Herod were enemies, they found in Jesus a common enemy. And they asked him this question. The question, as you know, was a trap. They flattered him up, uh, unsuccessfully tried to to make Jesus believe that they actually wanted to know his answer. Uh, You know, we've got this controversy. You know about the controversy before the the supporters of Herod and the Pharisees about taxes. Uh, Can you help us solve it? We know you're a good teacher. Of course, Jesus saw through that, knew that it was a trap. It was a very skillful trap. Should we pay the taxes or shouldn't we? Either answer could result in Jesus' death. If he said no, you should not pay the taxes, then the supporters of Herod could arrest him because he's from Galilee, take him back to Galilee, and possibly get his death penalty for treason. Of course you have to pay the taxes to, to Rome. That's the, uh, that's the agreement we have in order to keep our kingdom. If he says um, Yes, you should pay the taxes. Well, that's contrary to the Torah, which says you should only pay your tithes to God. According to the Pharisees, they could arrest him and bring him before a religious trial with the Sanhedrin and possibly get him stopped and maybe even killed. So either answer is impossible. I can only imagine that the crowd obviously knew all of this. Uh, We have to do some research to in background history to to understand all of the political ramifications of this question. Uh, But they they were more divided than the politics we've been watching. 
And here was Jesus in the middle. The crowd is silent. What is he going to say? We know his answer. I think most of you could, could repeat it by heart. But I think um, because we don't understand the coin that they gave him, we, we tend to focus, or in my memory, we've always focused on the image, whose image is on it. But Jesus said, whose picture and title are stamped on it? And that's significant. Because the coins in that time were stamped with the image of the current empire emperor whose name was Tiberius. But the inscription said, Son of the Deified Augustus. So Tiberius's father was Caesar Augustus. And after his death, the Romans, as they sometimes did, uh, deified or made Augustus into a god. So now he's added to the other gods and you must worship him. But he's not the current emperor. He's not the one you currently pay taxes to. That's Tiberius, and he's not a god. At least not yet. I'm sure he's trying to become one, but at that point in time, he's not yet a god. And so Jesus says, referring to the image of Tiberius, give to Caesar what is Caesar, what is Caesar's, but give to God your worship. Give to God what is God. Don't worship Augustus. Worship God. And they couldn't, they couldn't fault him. Neither side could fault him on that. And that gives us an answer even to, uh, to what would be an attitude or, a, or a, an answer to our political um, situations even till today, at least in some extent, at least a starting point. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So in other words, give your allegiance to God. Give your worship to God. Bow your knee to God. Put your energy and your effort and your, and your, your, um, your talents and, and, and your... Make your life about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And if the local politicians require something of you, that's of secondary importance. I mean, I mean just give it to them. Don't... don't don't be distracted by that from the main thing, which is your life given to God. Now, that doesn't mean there's not involvement. And, of course, we're going to have controversies over where that line is, what is Caesar's and what is God's. But the truth is, as Christians, we will agree on probably 95 or 99% of the things. And if there's a little bit that we disagree on or where we should draw the line, we shouldn't let that divide us. We shouldn't let that keep us from being devoted to God, from worshiping what we should worship. In fact, Peter, who I assume was there when Jesus uh, had this conversation, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, uh, Peter um, addresses something a little bit similar, though not about taxes, and he instructs us there to live as foreigners in a strange land, to live as though we're not citizens of the land in which we currently live. Now that gives us a clue. Um, just, just a few verses after, a sentence is after he says that, he gets into the same thing that Paul does in Romans about obeying the civil authorities. 
He's saying the same thing as Jesus. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So to take this out of um, controversial, well, maybe it's controversial, I don't know. Like I said, anything I can say on politics could be controversial. But just to take this to a different place so we can kind of think about it uh, apart from from the uh, emotions a little bit. Uh, Just imagine that you, uh, in the course of your employment, you uh, are asked or required or have the opportunity, I don't know how you would think about it, but you have to go to China to engage in some business. Uh, Maybe you're your company is opening a branch there and you're going to participate in getting that running or maybe your restaurant chain is opening, trying to open, maybe you work for Boston Pizza and they want to start one up in Wuhan province or something. I don't know, whatever you imagine maybe. But, but let's just say for employment purposes, you're going to China. You're a Canadian citizen. But when you get to China, you don't give up your Canadian citizenship. You don't give up your loyalty and love for Canada but you operate under the rules of China, whether you agree with them or not. You operate under those rules, except for in some cases. For example, under Canadian law, if you are doing business in another country and you accept a bribe, you can be prosecuted under Canadian law when you return for corruption. Okay, so follow the rules of China, when you're doing business in China, because you're not a Chinese citizen, don't get too involved in their politics and get all tied up in that and, and lose the focus of getting your, your job done. But where the Chinese law comes in conflict with Canadian law, follow Canadian law. And if that means you can't do business, then come home. I mean, we all understand that fairly, fairly easily, I think. Although different businesses make different decisions about where that line is between Canadian and Chinese law. But you're not paying taxes. I mean, yeah, there are taxes you'll have to pay in China if you're doing business there. You know, just, just pay them. That's secondary to getting your Canadian business going, getting your manufacturing going in the, in the factory that you're trying to, trying to get some quality control. I don't know what your business things are. None of us are doing business there as far as I know, so it's imaginary. But you, you understand what I mean, right? You're a Canadian. But when you're there, do business according to their rules, or you, you won't get anywhere. You'll, you'll be so busy fighting the rules that you'll never get the job done. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. You belong to my kingdom. This is what Peter says. Act as though you're foreigners in a foreign land. You're strangers. You, you live by your allegiance, your worship, your talents, your energy is for the kingdom of God. So while you're in this foreign territory, just, just do what they want. You get so distracted by fighting over the rules in this foreign land that's not even your land that you'll forget about the main purpose. You'll forget about what you're actually there for. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to the Communist Party what is the Communist Party's. Don't fret over it. But give to God what belongs to God. He's your king. He's your Lord. He's the one you worship. He's the one your talents and your money and your abilities and your friendships are for. Give to God what belongs to God. Don't allow anything else to become a God. 
When I've said these things before, I'm often accused of, well, what use are you then? I mean, there's, there's things going on in our world that are of grave consequence politically. So you just ignore them and put your energy into God's kingdom. What, what use are you? And I, I just remind you of Jesus' words. Jesus said that his kingdom is like a mustard seed. It doesn't seem like much when you devote yourself to it. But it can grow into something consequential, even in this world. Jesus said his kingdom is like yeast, invisibly working in the dough, and you don't even see it, don't even know it's there. And then you look back again, all of a sudden the buns have risen right up and it's all over inside them. You don't know when that happens, how quickly, how slowly, but just be the yeast. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Jesus says his kingdom is like a treasure that when you find it, it's worth giving everything you have, including your political influence, in order to get that treasure. But it's worth it. It's worth everything. It will have that value for you. And the New Testament again and again talks about the kingdom of God as a mystery. You and I don't have our fingers on the levers that change world history, no matter how hard we think we do. It's a mystery. But he has given us a task. Make disciples in his kingdom. Focus on that. And the other things will come too. What happens when we put our faith or our worship in the wrong things? Well, just look around you and you see the fruit. When people put their hope for salvation in political teams, then their only recourse is to think that what my team values is ethical and right and what the other team values is immoral and therefore I can do whatever I want against the immoral. Because there is no higher standard if you don't worship God. There is no higher standard than your own ideas to determine right from wrong if you don't give to God what is God's. And then what happens? Well, what you see all around us. But what difference does it make? Some of you remember my Facebook post, and some of you aren't on Facebook, so of course you don't. And some of you might be on Facebook, but aren't on my friend list, so you didn't see this. But I put this picture up some time ago, and I, I'm going to read what I wrote in it, in it attached to that in terms of what difference does it make. This is what I wrote. A phrase I've been hearing is, politics is downstream of culture. I would add a third category. Politics is downstream of culture, and culture is downstream of faith. Each one of us acts in the world out of what we believe, what we have put our faith in. As many thousands and millions of people act and interact, the sum of those actions becomes a culture. 
Politics tries to read the culture and produce candidates and policies that will appeal to the culture. If you find yourself frustrated over politics, focus less on politics and more on faith. Faith can grow in unexpected ways. Another phrase I've read, and I didn't give the reference on Facebook, but it's from Hebrews. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. The only solution to unethical politics is ethical people. Doesn't matter which party wins. If the people that make up the parties are not ethical people, you will not have ethical politics. And the only way to produce ethical people, and therefore an ethical culture, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to raise families that follow Jesus, to turn your eyes upon Jesus. It seems so small and insignificant to put all our energy, all our talents, all our ability into the church of Jesus Christ when all these crazy things are happening around us that need solutions. But it's the most important thing. It's the only thing that can ultimately make a widespread difference. Sociologists tell us in all kinds of areas that it only takes about 10 to 20% of a given population to have a a specific point of view before it becomes normalized in the population. You understand what that means? It means that if if, uh, if 10% of the people in Edmonton ride a bicycle to work every, every day, then no one will be opposed to bicycle paths anymore. Even though the rest of them don't ride bicycles. It only takes 10 to 20% of a population to have a specific point of view before it becomes normalized in the culture. It only takes 10 to 20% of people to be Christian before Christian ethics becomes normalized and expected in the culture. It's not impossible. It's quite probable that after the last year we've had, when churches open up, people might pour in. Are we ready for them? Are we working towards that? Are we trusting God? There's a person who, several years ago, I heard talking about these things, and he says it much better than I did, so I'm going to close with that. He might be a hero of yours, and he might be an enemy of yours. Nevertheless, I ask you to listen to him. His name is Preston Manning, and he is an Alberta politician, and uh, he's controversial in some ways. Uh, I, I put on there the, uh, the full uh, link to the, his speech so that uh, if you, if you want to hear it in its full, because it makes even more sense in its full, um, you can go on our website maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday when Karen puts this sermon up and pause the sermon on that slide and get the website there. I'm just going to show you the conclusion of his talk. And he talks about this idea of ethics and politics. And my contention, my, my argument here this morning is that Jesus is the answer for politics. There is no other answer. 
the best thing, the most productive thing you and I can do is make disciples of Jesus Christ if we want our politics to change. That's the best thing. Let, let's hear uh, how that works itself out. You, you might, just, just a tiny bit of context. At the time of the story that Preston Manning is going to tell, his father was the premier of Alberta. And just before that, one of the most famous Alberta Bible preachers, William Aberhart, was premier. Another very controversial figure. But nevertheless, he preached the gospel and became premier as a gospel preacher. It was a context in which that had been normal in politics and in civil service, Christian ethics. So listen to his story. And if you, if you want to know how to fix politics, this is, this is how. Can the ethical few set the ethical standard for the many, for, for a government, for a business, or a, a university? And let me close with an old but uh, true Alberta story that combines politics, ethics, and faith. And th this story actually occurred. I know both of the participants in it. And it occurred in 1947 after the discovery of oil at Leduc. You know, Alberta was flat on her back. Alberta was the one province went bankrupt in the, in the Depression, couldn't borrow after 1938. Budget of the province of Alberta was $17 million in 1938. Nine million of it was debt service charges. She ran the province of Alberta on $7 million. And uh, th then Leduc came in. My father was premier at the time. They got a call from New York, from First Boston Corporation that was looking after the debt that, was, that they weren't paying the interest on, saying, all is forgiven. <laughs> but uh, as soon as Leduc hit, of course, every oil entrepreneur in North America showed up in, in Edmonton, mainly the oil patch people from the United States, from Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana. Um, and they had two questions when they got to Edmonton. Where is Leduc and who do you pay? Because in the American system, particularly in the early days in the oil patch, the way you got drilling rights was to pay off the political people. Uh, and that, that, the, 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 there was a whole uh, corruption that occurred in the uh, oil patch in the United States that it was a dickensive thing to get out once you got it in. The, the uh, federal administration of Warren G. Harding was, um, was brought down, basically, over an oil uh, scandal in the uh, oil patch, the bribe given to get grant drilling rights in a, in a federal... Uh, federal uh, nature reserve. So anyway, this uh, now my father was aware of the dangers to a, an oil producing area on the ethical front. If you if you ever had a boom, so he used to at least once a year round his troops up. Uh, the deputy ministers, the deputy de uh, ministers, uh, the assistant deputies, and his cabinet and MLAs. And he had they would have called it a sermon, but he had this short thing. Those of us who make the laws and those of us who administer the laws had better keep the laws or we lose our moral authority to govern. That was it. And he also hinted that I have a couple of guys in the Attorney General's department, he never say who they were because this created a mystery about it, who are going to be watching that we keep this rule. But but you can only do so much by, you know, pre preaching at people. It's not it's not good enough. Uh, anyway, the oil patch people went around, where's the Duke and who do we pay? And Fortunately for Alberta, two of the people that they hit on first, one was a, a civil servant by the name of Hubert Somerville, who was a, a fairly lowly guy. In, yeah, by that time, Alberta didn't have an energy department. It had mines and minerals, and petroleum was quite low because Alberta didn't have oil except at Turner Valley. And Somerville was the, 
the civil servant who was in charge of petroleum in the, and Somerville was one of the guys that they went to and said, do we gotta pay you? Do we gotta pay some people in the bureaucracy? Who do we gotta pay to get the drilling rights? The other person they went to was a man named Orvis Kennedy, who was the, uh, the president of the Alberta Social Credit League, the political party, the governing party's political organization and its chief fundraiser. And of course, he was a natural target. They went to him, well, Orvis, who do we gotta pay? You know, look, all these MLAs, the premier, the you, what, what? And fortunately for Alberta, both these men, without consultation, I don't think they knew each other at that stage, both of them said exactly the same thing, and they said it instantly. They said, if you ever offer me or my people uh, a bribe like that again, we will ensure one thing. We will use our influence to ensure one thing, that you and your company never get drilling rights in the province of Alberta. And of course, the oil patch guys, that was fine. It's gonna be cheaper doing business here than Louisiana. All they wanted, <laughs> all they wanted to know was the, was the rules. And uh, uh, Somerville actually began his work with the Alberta government in the Depression at $700 a year salary. And what these people were offering <laughs> was an awful lot more than that. Uh, uh, Somerville eventually became deputy minister of the department, retired with a, uh, a fairly decent pension, but not, not by old patch standards. Kennedy was even poorer than Somerville and never ended up with a pension at all. Died a poor man, but died with his integrity uh, too. Uh, Somerville, if you asked him, and I, I, I did ask him once, like, what? what why did you say that at the time that you did? And he didn't have a lot of time to think about it. He, he said, said it was my, my, my standards as a professional civil servant. It was my professional standard, and that's why I did it. Kennedy did it because of his faith commitment. Kennedy said, because I think in the end of the day I'm accountable to God, not just to your father or to the party or to, or to whoever. Uh, uh, so I, I guess what I'm saying here is that um, uh, codes of ethics and ethics commissioners, uh, regulatory and accountability legislation have their, certainly have their place in raising the ethical tone of politics or business in the profession. But if the aim is uh, ethical, corruption-free politics or business in the professions, people of personal integrity and character uh, in the right place, at the right time, doing the right thing, there is no substitute for that. The best thing you can do for politics is turn your eyes upon Jesus. <laughs>